Good evening, everybody. This is uh, Nevin Gussack, the host of the Patriotic Populist, with my co-host Herschel Miller. How's it going tonight, Herschel? Oh, Nevin, it's going pretty good. Uh, this weather's kind of cleared up around here. We don't have a foot of snow on the ground. I have to say, times are pretty good right now. Good, good, good. Very, very nice. There is some relief in sight uh, for my brothers and sisters out in the Midwest. I see it's daytime in the background there. He's still got sunlight. Yeah, yeah. We're it's it's right at that great time in year, like right before it springs forward. The evenings are real pretty. It's I think it's like fifty something degrees right now outside. It's, it's it's look. I know to a Floridian that just sounds terrible, but fifty degrees after the negative seven degree temperatures we had last week sounds really all right by me. Well, that's like tropical uh, forest weather compared to what you had. I mean, geez, Louise. I, I mean, there were some places in northwest Arkansas that had, what was it, a 90-degree temperature swing over the course of five days, I think. Oh, I could believe it. That kind yep. of that, that kind of spread can really create crazy weather, crazy storms, too. Oh, it is. You know, I understand it was it was a pretty crazy event and I feel so terrible for all the people that, that, you know, have lost everything in this in, in certain circumstances, but it was actually pretty cool for certain parts of it to actually see snow stick on the ground. Because look here in Southeast Oklahoma, we don't, we don't generally get the snow that they do up in the panhandle or Northern Oklahoma. Mm-hmm. Um, mostly because we have a lot of warm, moist air that blows up out of the Southeast over Arkansas and Louisiana. Um, but you know, this is the first time in my life I've seen snow stick to the ground for more than about three days everywhere. I'm not talking about in the shade. I mean, the roads, I went to work last Monday morning and you could not tell the difference in between the highway and the fields next to it. I mean, it was total Mm -hmm. stick, totally snow covered and it was pretty. It really was. It's probably something in my part of Oklahoma that I'm not going to get to see again for a long time. Mm. Yeah, well, but from, c- coming from New York, Long Island, I mean, I we had our fair share of blizzards and snow. I went to school in uh, State University of New York in Albany, undergraduate school, and surely they had plenty of snow, lots of cold weather, cold temperatures and whatnot. Uh, one thing I want to see and then just really get the hell out of there in a fast vehicle, I'd like to see a tornado. No, I'm telling you. Now, look, I'm not I've comparing. Seen person. Yeah, I'm not comparing disaster. Just, just saying the word tornado will drive an Oki in under the house. But no, here's the thing. The thing that's always scared me so much about tornadoes is, you know, with a with a hurricane. Now, hurricanes are absolutely devastating, especially you know the category threes, fours, and fives can create all kinds of damage, displace millions of people. It can be terrible in the worst of circumstances. But generally speaking, you've got a few days of warning before that, that, that hurricane will make landfall. The thing about tornadoes that's such a terrifying concept is, is that, yes, today with Doppler radar, we're a lot better at predicting where tornadoes will be and seeing through the rain. But a lot of times they can just come out of nowhere. And, you know, usually a tornado coincides with a fairly strong storm. So I've always been scared of storms. It's something I, I, it's a fear I've had since I was little. They just drive me crazy. And 
you'll be sitting there and you'll listen to the wind blowing and seeing because the uh, tornadoes, I guess they, they say they whistle or something. kind of sounds like a train, I guess. But mm-hmm. it's a different sound to the wind, and you're just always kind of listening out for it. And so you've never seen one? or No. I, I, okay, I'll say this. There was one night about seven years ago. Yeah, about seven years ago that I think I seen the early formations of a tornado in a late night storm. So what mm-hmm. it was, it was a really pretty sight all things considered, but basically I'm at my stepdad's house and I'm looking out across this field with him. And in between the lightning, you can see this cone and it would be there and then the lightning Mm -hmm. would flash again and then it would go away and then it would be there and then it would go away. Mm -hmm. And I don't think it ever touched down. Like maybe it touched down way on out in, you know, further East, but I would, as far as what ones that I could say for certain, that's I think the only one. I mean, I could turn on the Weather Channel and look at them all day from the comfort. Oh, I've seen plenty of YouTube videos, and probably and during the summer we have the tornadoes over the ocean called water spouts that are off the coast. So I guess if I really, really wanted to see one, you know, during the afternoon in the summer, I can drive along Route A1A, which parallels the beach and the Atlantic Ocean, and probably check it out. I think I came close to seeing a tornado once in Florida. It wasn't a tornado; it was something called a wall cloud. And it's this huge, huge circular base of a cloud that's uh, underneath a type of thunderstorm called a supercell, which is like a massively powerful thunderstorm. And that supercell, inside the supercell, is the mesocyclone, which is a combination, I guess, of the updrafts and downdrafts that forms the tornadic circulation. And I remember seeing one actually right here in Coral Springs, but this is like 20 years ago. I had first met my wife, actually. I mean, then we were just going out as serious boyfriend and girlfriend. And I remember seeing it behind us and I'm like driving away from it and pointing out to her, I'm like, oh shit, there's like a, that looks like a wall cloud over there. We better just get the hell out of here, but it's cool. It's kind of like nervous, but you know, I was interested in the weather when I was younger and I always thought it was kind of cool. I guess it's a little bit of a science geek in me, I guess. Well, I don't know. Well, let me ask you this, Nevin, because I've never seen a hurricane. You've never seen a tornado. But me and you both live in very volatile parts of the country, uh, weather-wise. Mm-hmm. So when I know what you're talking about with wall clouds. That's something that we're taught to look out for, because usually yeah. a wall cloud will coincide for the worst part of the storm. But it's always been such an eerie feeling to me when you – because. What is it? It's just about to be March. So that thought. Uh-huh. For yeah, a, I'll talk a little about for about the next three months, or at least the better part of March and April, and then maybe the early parts of May, but generally March and April are the worst time for storms in Oklahoma. And you know, I can remember days, you know, you're just out kind of minding your own business, working, going to school, whatever, and all of a sudden one of them supercells will roll in. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the sky gets this really almost like a sea green color, a real eerie, ominous looking color. Yeah. It will. I mean, look, to most people, and this is, I'm a bit dramatic about storms. I admit that. I don't like them. But it's almost, it's, it's almost beautiful to see it just knowing but you know what it's about to mean it's going to be if even if you don't get a tornado it's probably going to bring hail and some hell 
heavy, heavy winds. So let me ask you this before we get started with the rest of the video. Mm-hmm. You've been in Florida now for quite a while. What mm-hmm. is it like going through a hurricane? It's scary. And the precursors, you get shower, scattered showers and thunderstorms, particularly with the outer bands, what are known as the outer bands. And as the hurricane gets closer, it depends on what side of the hurricane you get. Um, but in general, it's very devastating. It's tremendous wind and rain. You don't get as much thunder and lightning because I, the storm's energy, I forget the explanation, but it's something to the effect. And if there's any meteorologists out here, feel free in the audience, feel free to comment. Um, it sucks the energy out of the clouds, thereby preventing uh, lightning and lightning from occurring or developing. It's something to do with the energy that it just sucks it out. It does produce thunderstorms outside as well as tornado in the outer edges of the hurricanes. Um, and also as when the hurricane is passing, there are still leftover storms that can produce thunderstorms uh, or cumulonimbus clouds. Really hurricanes are just a combination of massive cumulus and cumulonimbus clouds. Uh, and, uh, it's tremendous amount of torrential rain and wind. It's the wind can howl. It's if you have hurricane shutters on the house, uh, they will rattle depending on how powerful the winds are. And uh, when you go through the eye, that's probably the most, shall we say, awesome contrast because you have all this violent weather and the eye which is the center of the hurricane, is a couple of miles long, maybe five miles, 10 miles, 20 miles, sometimes even longer or wider, depending on the side, the power of the storm. And it's just total calm, sunny skies, until the eye passes and then boom, the weather, which is even worse at times in the second half of the hurricane, and it just howls and pounds, and it's it's it can be pre- pretty scary. And you're inside most of the time, so they don't recommend you, uh, for obvious reasons, hanging out, uh, you know, while the storm is occurring. But it's 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 a pretty awesome event, I'll tell you that. So, um, but uh, yeah. So what are we what are we going to talk about tonight? I got my. I got my uh, handy-dandy rum and Coke Zero. That's going to be my beverage of choice. For those of you who are wondering why I just got up, I'm in the process of cooking food. Nice set of ribs, spare ribs. And I doused it with three limes. Squeezed the juice out of it. Put mango marinade. And then I also cooked up pork chops in the air fryer. Air fryer is the best way to go when cooking most forms of meat and fish and etc. So that's what I was doing. I mean, those of you, little fun fact about me at least, I like to do some cooking. I've learned many different things from many different people about cooking, so it's a lot of fun. What are you drinking there, Herschel? I am tr- drinking the Tradesman Special, a NOS energy drink, because I run out of monsters. Um <laughs> Boy, that is a mega energy drink. We could do See, three shows with that drink. So this is the thing that about tradesmen. Um, 
which is something I do want to talk about later in this video is talking a little bit about tradesmen and why you, sh you know, pros and cons of being a tradesman. Mm -hmm. um, there's three things that a tradesman will find in life the longer he's in. He will find at least a crippling addiction to energy drinks, mm -hmm. uh, a crippling addiction to fast, like, you know, hot box food at a gas station, and most likely an alcoholic problem. Mm. It's just, it's just part of the job. You know, you work these long hours and dangerous conditions on tight deadlines and, you know, it's just, oh, and you will find some form of tobacco that you like, whether that be dip or cigars or cigarettes mm -hmm. or all three of them at the same time, mm -hmm. you know, but you will find something, some form of vice to hold on to. Nevin, if you wouldn't mind getting us started, I have to hit something real quick. Sure, sure. No problem. Well, I will say for the librarians, if you will, and probably I would include tradesmen in this too, our vice, or at least my vice, is coffee. Mm. Love myself some coffee. I will have on my work days one or two cups. I don't put sugar in the coffee. Sometimes I'll put a little of that vanilla, French vanilla cream in there, like a teaspoonful that's perfectly enough. I don't put sugar. And then my second cup will usually be just black. And that gets me going every day. That's my vice. Uh, <laughs> and look, a lot of tradesmen and other blue collar professionals. I mean, we have tradesmen working here. I've met many of them and they seem to enjoy their coffee too as well. So, you know, that's, that's my vice. If I had to pick a dietary vice, or uh, it would be coffee. But they say that coffee is can be healthy too, especially black. So you know, you know. Who knows? Now look, I love coffee. I really do. The only reason I didn't make a pod is because I forgot to put one on right before the video started. But the thing, and this is the reason I, I usually drink more energy drinks than I do coffee during my work week, is because I just forget to make it in the mornings. You know, it's four o'clock in the morning, you get up, you're putting your pants and your boots on and making sure you've got everything to go to work. And look, I know a lot of people don't put the water in there and have it all ready to go. And, you know, they'll get it ready at night before they go to bed and turn it on in the morning. Them people are what I term responsible adults. And I am not a good responsible adult. <laughs> <laughs> No, but if if I if given the option, I do like coffee over energy, any energy drink. Mm -hmm. Oh yeah, well, coffee is also healthier too. It's better for you compared to that. I mean, I actually have um, I've drank energy drinks when I was taking a road trip mm -hmm. to New Jersey and New York City last year because I was helping somebody move stuff down here to Florida. And let me tell you something. I lived on energy drinks and those things really got me going. And I got to tell you, I liked making that road trip to New York and New Jersey better than flying, to be honest with you. If I had more time, I'd do it again by car. In fact, that might be a, that's going to be one of my goals. Another goal is to also once my daughter Emily is in college, which is only what two and a half years away going to be traveling doing some world traveling that's going to be my next thing my next goal so but anyways what do we got what, we, what do we got for the audience tonight what are we going to be talking about well Nevin, i think it would be 
I mean, you got to talk about the elephant in the room and the the, uh, the the winter weather that the country just experienced over the last couple of weeks. And the oh, fact yeah. that at one point over 75% of the country was covered in snow at the same time that it snowed in northern Mexico. Like, yes. <laughs> you know, then people have probably went a whole generation in between snow. But Ted Cruz escaped that, right? Oh, He's yeah. Blessed, blessed Mexican father travels 1,500 miles to seek shelter for his daughter. It was, it was. Well, actually, he's Cuban American, but yeah, there you go. I know. It, it's, or sorry, Latin American. And I hate to offend everybody in the audience. I wasn't meaning it that way. But it just, it just seems so damn hypocritical to me. Because this is the thing is, I don't, I, I don't hate Ted Cruz because he, he, he fled the country in the middle of a crisis when he's an elected representative. I mean, I just don't like Ted Cruz to begin with. Well, he's a fake asshole of a politician, even if you and I, and we do agree with you know, certain positions, political positions he has. I mean, the guy, I could just see through him. He's such a fake, phony asshole. And I've seen such politicians personally down here in Florida. Well, and, and look, I, I think being fake and being a politician goes hand in hand. There's, there's hardly an honest politician's ever graced our halls of Congress. But, but this is the thing. It was... To the people in Texas that had to go through what they just go through, my heart goes out to you. Because, look, I'm in Oklahoma. We're right above you. Yeah, we got hit a little harder. But our state was ready for it. You know, for the most part, yes, Oklahoma had to do some energy rationing. Yes, the gas companies had to limit the utilities to certain industry. But on the whole, Oklahoma managed to get through it relatively unscathed from what I've seen. Texas, on the other hand... And y'all got hit in the chat, hit in the head. And, and, and this is the thing about it. It is, it is nobody's fault that the storm happened. You know, it wasn't, it, it wasn't, you, you know, I'm not blaming the Republicans or Democrats or anybody that the storm come through. What I am saying, going to be talking about this episode though, is, is that it is another perfect example of why deregulation and cost cutting cost people their lives and it cost people their life savings. So I'm trying to find this picture here, but I seen this the other day and it nearly politics. If you're going to be in politics, I'll give advice to anybody while I'm looking this picture up. If you're going to be in politics, you have to understand that you're going to have times that you've just got to grow real thick skin in a hurry because Mm -hmm. At the end of the day, it's a rough line of work, and there's going to be a lot of things that you're going to see that you've just got to learn to wipe off, you know, brush off. This made me indignant. Mm. So this is from Stephanie Rule on Twitter. Mm-hmm. New York Times. My savings is gone, said Scott Wilbury, a 63-year-old Army vet who lived on Social Security in a Dallas mm-hmm. suburb. He nearly emptied his savings to pay the $16,000 $752 electric bill charged to a CC times 70. Oh, sorry. Charged to his Social Security. Mm-hmm. Seven times what he usually pays for all of his utility bills combined. Mm-hmm. Look, we are the richest country in world history. Bar none. Like, I don't think the, the Ottoman Empire or the Roman Empire at its peak moved more money in a day than our country does. 
but this is the thing. There is no excuse, none, absolutely ever, that somebody should be charged a $16,000 electric bill unless they were running an all-night rave 24 hours a day, seven days a week for a full year. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, now look. Text, this is the thing. I've seen Republicans, because let's rewind the clocks back to last year when California was burning to the ground. Now, we could go on and on about global warming and climate policy and all that, but for the time being, I just want to take it at face value that California was experiencing a, a, a severe drought and then lit on fire. And it was terrible. Thousands of people lost their homes, people lost their lives, their businesses, their livestock, their savings. It was terrible. Absolutely terrible what happened in California and other parts of the American West. You know who commented on California's energy situation? Ted Cruz. And Mm -hmm. Ted Cruz went on and on about California's green energy policies that were hampering the people of California's ability to protect their own lives and how it was their problem that overregulation and government overreach caused all these power outages in California. And it was a terrible thing. And he should have been, you know, dragged outside and beaten with a club right then and there. Ted Cruz has been awfully quiet about the situation in Texas. I think he said I was wrong in one tweet, and that's all he said. But this is the thing that, that did wrong about me. what could you imagine? about his comments on California? Sorry, he, oh. I think he did walk back and you know because somebody tweeted at him and said, "Hey, you remember this quote about power outages being the fault of a state government?" Oh, I thought Ted Cruz maybe got hit in the head, suffered temporary amnesia, and said that he was wrong about his support for teabagger deregulation policies. Ah, but but that's just wishful thinking, right? But but this is the thing: Republicans across the entire country were coming out of the woodworks and on from the bottom to the top. I'm talking about people on Facebook all the way up to elected representatives and media pundits were going on and on and on about how. Green energy and the Green New Deal has failed Texas. I want to look. I got a statistic pulled up right here. Now, before I say this, Nevin, I want to ask you: What percentage of Texas's power grid do you think is dependent on green energy? Yeah, uh, between ten and twenty percent. Twenty percent. So a little bit higher than you thought. Now that's a significant percentage of the of the energy grid that that was, you know, more or less knocked out during the the, the weather. But this is the thing: before people start talking about how you know windmills are bad because windmills don't work in the weather, Canada has a very extensive windmill infrastructure built in this country. Not perfect. Canada's a long way from being green energy independent, and I don't think wind's the best way to get there. But the point is, if Canada can have wind turbines that function year-round, so can Texas. Very true. The problem in Texas is not about a freak weather event that just totally and fundamentally broke the power grid because the system just couldn't handle it because, I mean, I guess it is, but it's not because, you know, green energy doesn't work in the cold. What you've seen in Texas was a 20-plus year campaign from the elected Republicans across the state to consistently cut cost on on the the infrastructure. See, this is the thing. Texas is the only state in the United States that has its own power grid. The only one. 
And the reason that Texas has its own power grid is because Texas, being Texas and always talking about independence, did mm -hmm. not want the federal government to regulate the power supply. Yeah, that's so right. So basically come up with this system where they would supply their own power to their own state to get away from all these pesky government regulations that, by the way, are there to ensure that when a once-in-a-generation storm comes through, that hundreds of people don't freeze to death and billions of dollars in property damage don't occur. So Texas went on, went on this campaign, and basically what they said was, is, you know, it doesn't get cold here that often. And a once-in-a-generation event could theoretically happen, but maybe it'll happen further on in the future. But it did happen, and people are dead. Billions of dollars in property damages have occurred. Irreparable economic uh, destruction in certain communities from people that lost their businesses up to, due to either out, absolutely outrageous utility bill costs and as well as just outright property damage. You know, water pipes busting and flooding buildings. And, you know, it, it was a terrible, terrible thing that happened in Texas. And somebody has to stop and ask why texas because it gets cold all the damn time up north you know look yes it's incredibly unusual for this part of the world to have negative temperatures like that's something that we don't see but you know states like iowa even kansas not that far north of us you know they have winters like that okay you know occasionally depending on how bad the year is and their power grid doesn't completely shut down so it goes back to the point that cost-cutting measures and government deregulation in the name of freedom mm -hmm. cost people their lives, and it cost billions. All the money. Now, they didn't even save money. This is the worst part about it. Texas actually spent more money on power than they should have with the regulations. Tens of billions of dollars yeah. worth. So what happened in Texas? Now, this is going to be the subject of many, many congressional hearings and videos detailing the entire sequence of events. But from what I've gathered so far, what happened? The natural gas lines feeding the power plant froze solid. Because natural gas will freeze like propane at a certain temperature, or at least restrict the flow enough that, they, that, that adequate flow is not reaching the power stations. And once that happened, the grid collapsed in on itself. Now, I understand, and I will give credence to the argument that something like this, you know, it's like Katrina hitting. Like sometimes an act of God just comes along and destroys everything in its path. But, you know, Louisiana is not, that, that is not a good example for that argument because Louisiana suffered from the same problems when Katrina hit. They did not have the adequate state measures set up to deal with a Category 5 hurricane making landfall and displacing millions of people. So this all comes back to the central point, is what is the role of government? And to me, the role of the government is to prepare for that once-in-a-generation event, to put back systems and regulations in place to say, look, it will probably never happen. Texas may go another 100 years without seeing an event like this. But if it happens again, we need to do better than we did this time. Mm. So, Nevin, what's some of your thoughts about it? Oh, I mean, there are a few little comments I made here and there just to buttress your point. Um, no, I, I, I agree with you uh, wholeheartedly. 
Uh, but before I give my opinion, I know you were telling me in a conversation that a few days ago on the phone that you have family living in Texas. No, well, I do have family living in Texas. What I was trying to say to you is I have family in the energy sector. You know, okay. in this part of Arkansas and Oklahoma. Oh, okay. Apologies, but they had. Oh, my apologies, but um, do so, so they work in the energy industry. So I think they would have good insight into exactly what happened by virtue of their career experience. What are their thoughts? Do they confirm? Well, that, well that's what I'll say. That's where I've, I've gathered up some of the opinions so far between mostly people that I know or met throughout the years. But it's mostly, like I said, them saying that the gas lines froze going into the power plants. Mm -hmm. was the straw that broke the camel's back. That was what finally, you know, through the, you know, broke the system. So in other words, it wasn't wind turbines. It was the gas lines frozen, not wind turbines, in case there are some, you know, people that are kind of your Tea Party or hard, hardline Republicans who are doubting this. And these are this, these are opinions given by people, family members in the energy industry in your area who have knowledge. And to me, <clears throat> the, the, such individuals who work in the energy sector, I would give their opinions more credence than say someone like Ted Cruz or other people that you know, just preach deregulation and, and grousing about the Green New Deal and all the rest of that. I mean, that's number one. Number two, you know, deregulation has always failed, or what I term crony deregulation, where you have special interests that selectively want the federal governments and even state and local governments to get rid of regulations, all in the name of enhancing profit. You know, and one thing I'm just, you know, kind of, I address that in my book, uh, Turning the Page, and, you know, uh, I, I have a little part on Reagan era, Reagan administration era deregulation. And to quote my book, and this buttresses what you said, the damage caused by deregulation. Uh, deregulation had its social costs as well to working Americans. Between 1980 and 1986, OSHA's inspections of manufacturing concerns fell by 30% and its fines dropped from $26 million to $13 million, which means a vast increase in accidents. And that has occurred even recent in recent years uh, in the various auto parts plants in the South. And there have been write-ups in the Atlantic and I think the Independent on those issues. I mean, really bad accidents as a result of not uh, having enough OSHA inspectors going to these hotspots to prevent these problems from occurring and these accidents had for the, the results of these accidents were fatalities under president reagan mine safety and health administration civil penalties uh dropped by 27 percent while the number of mine fatalities increased from 133 in 1980 to 153 in 1981 so that was quite an increase all in one year, uh, right there. So I mean, that's uh, you know kind of a that's kind of a problem uh, when you have there. When you look at uh, banking deregulation, that's another issue right there. Uh, we've all seen the results of the repeal of Glass-Steagall, 
We've seen the results of stock buybacks being legalized again in 1982 by the SEC under Reagan, and that has created, uh, you know, an entirely uh, financialized, speculation-oriented economy that has not benefited uh, things like uh, research and development necessarily, and it really has uh, increased. Uh, extreme forms of income inequality. Uh, you have the cartelization of industry as a result of, you know, mergers and acquisitions and leverage buyouts being uh, basically encouraged by the federal government and, you know, the sort of Reaganite economic policies that have been uh, put in place. I mean, the list goes on and on. I mean, deregulation, or as I term it specifically, crony deregulation is a massive problem and a massive failure. It really uh, and truly is. Um, there was a study, I'm trying to find it, done by the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, um, and it talked about how most of the studies that have been done about deregulation uh, put in highlight the costs of deregulation, but very few of them will describe the savings that have resulted from deregulation. Uh, and this MIT study shows that uh, it showed literally, I think it was, this is from 1980s dollars, how millions, if not billions of dollars in social costs were actually saved uh, by properly uh, crafted regulations. I'm really trying to find this because it really kind of, it really, really highlights the point that I'm trying to make. Uh, that's what happens when you write a book that tends to have quite a bit of information. But yeah, it, it was a study done by MIT, and it really, it really was very eye-opening. And I think that was like from about 1980. I think it was from like 1986 or 1985. So, you know, this is not surprising, you know, and a number of these politicians like Ted Cruz that are, you know, they hail, uh, you know, the Texas model of governance, including energy policy. Uh, you know, many of these guys, Texas, Ted Cruz especially, they receive campaign contributions from the energy industry from the fossil fuel and uh, specifically for fossil fuel uh, energy producers. And, you know, that's kind of what you're going to get as a result. Um, I can't find the thing right now. Uh, I'll look for it later. Um, but the bottom line is, is that, you know, you have campaign finance lobbying issues that are at the heart of this, too. There's a lot of money behind deregulation, including energy deregulation. Um, and then on top of that, you also have to think there is an important point here. 
The idea of deregulation and, quote, freedom in its sort of libertarian economic sense, much of that results when you have much of that philosophy of deregulation and laissez-faire liberalism and economics, it's very short-sighted. It's, it basically uh, incentivizes uh, short-term thinking. So this notion of disasters and whatnot, it's like, so what? It's once in a hundred years. You know, we'll, we'll deal with it when it comes up. We're prepared for it and everything else. I mean, this is the result when you have publicly traded uh, corporations. They operate solely on shareholder supremacy. Enrich the shareholders, the majority shareholders. Doesn't matter what you do. Cut costs, which is usually what happens as a result. A lot of it is cutting costs and other things, but especially cutting costs. What happens when you cut costs? That sacrifices service. It could sacrifice research and development potentially. And this is what you get from deregulation and other short-term economic thinking that's, you know, at the heart of Reaganism. I mean, it was Rick Perry, the governor, who said, I think he was the one who basically, him and George W. Bush, who was governor of Texas, and particularly Rick Perry, I mean, he basically said, look, we don't want to be subjected to federal regulation. It's this sort of anti-government kind of ideology that is weaponized by big corporations, big energy. And Rick Perry was a tool of them. Rick Perry is basically a corporation serving as a governor or serves, who served as a governor. And, you know, the rest is history. He said, you know, he's full on for deregulation. And that's why he, um, you know, wanted Texas to have its, for the most part, its own grid. There are some parts of Texas, like El Paso, for example, that were hooked on the nationalized grid. But yeah, he was all about deregulation. His campaign for president in 2012 was all about deregulation, a, a lot of his stuff. But of course, you know, it's the typical, it's, you know, the typical Republican tradition, the sort of Reaganite Republican nonsense. It's very utopian. And that utopianism for libertarian economics is weaponized by corporations and other special interests. Uh, to enhance their profit making. And if the country or society it's hurt, oh well, doesn't matter. You know, that's just business. Well, Nevin, that's I'll say this, and it's something, a point that I try to make. I was talking to somebody about this the other day. You know, deregulation and regulation, it's, it's, a, it's a touchy, very gray subject that's not always clear about what's best. Because for the working class, speaking of on populism and especially working class politics, for us, it's one of them damned if you do, damned if you don't kind of things. Because when regulations come about, you were talking about the Mine Safety and Health Administration earlier. Mm -hmm. We call them MSHA, you know, and it's and it shouldn't be this way. But when MSHA shows up on a job site, you get off that job site. You get away from it. you go away. Because their job, and at least how the inspectors have done their job, doesn't seem to be caring about people's safety. It's to advance their own career by writing tickets for stuff that... I'll give you an example. My foreman, who taught me about everything I know, John, if you're watching this, good, I, I, I'm very thankful for all you did for me. 
But my foreman that really taught me about everything I know, he was telling me the story of this conveyor belt that he had on a mine site. And it was guarded on the outside, what we call the meat grinder, which is a slotted tail pulley. The reason we call it a meat grinder is because it's very bad if somebody gets caught in that. Um, mm. Guarded on all sides, and for a reasonable suspicion, there's no way that somebody could have got themselves hurt or caught up in that meat grinder. The MC inspector wanted a guard placed on the bottom of it. When John asked him why he wanted a guard placed on it, the MC inspector told him that theoretically somebody could lay on their back and crawl underneath the conveyor belt and stick their hand up into the meat grinder and get you know caught up in it. Now look, and and he got a fine over that too. That wasn't just a question, you know, a suggestion. Like the, the mine site got fined over that, from what I understand. And stuff like that, that's not helping anybody. That's not helping the working class people. That's not helping workers. And that just makes it harder for smaller businesses to make it on. And if there was any libertarian principles that I agree with, I do think that there's too damn many regulations on the working class people and small businesses mm -hmm. that are destroying the, the country. But on the other side of that, when deregulation hits, it never helps the working class. You know, when we get deregulation, you know, these, these these senators run on the promises of deregulation. It's always deregulation of the banks, deregulation of environmental standards, deregulation of where you can drill oil or where you can dump wastewater, deregulation of, of emission standards. Yes, you could say that the added jobs help people, but at the same time, like there's a reason that we had these damn regulations in the first place. You know, it wasn't that long ago, the What's that river by Cleveland? I always forget it. Cuyahoga but, River. The Cuyahoga River. Yeah, it wasn't that long ago that some bitch was on fire. But like, that was in your lifetime. I believe that was, that was the 1980s, wasn't it? No, 1969. Okay, so technically, that's still within your lifetime. Sure. Well, not yeah. my lifetime, but when this, you know, baby. That's not that long ago. There's plenty of people alive today that was alive in 1969. Yes, oh, so, exactly. And that's what's crazy to think about is, is that we have these regulations because people in the past said, hey, maybe we shouldn't dump toxic waste in the rivers. Maybe we shouldn't allow our entire power grid to go down to a bad snowstorm. You know, maybe these there are regulations that we need, and I absolutely believe in that. I think that we need to have safety standards for vehicles. I think we need to have emission standards. We need to have work safety standards. But one of the things that, that I believe that the government needs to do a better job of is, is that working class people should have a hand in writing this legislation. The, the trucking industry is a prime example. So my stepdad's a trucker. He spent his whole life driving trucks. My stepbrother's a trucker, runs a good, successful business. Very proud of him. They have fought stupid regulations at every turn. And see, these regulations, this is another example of how our government serves the interest of the, the biggest corporations. They write these regulations that there's almost no way that small businesses can ever meet them. Mm -hmm. Because, you know, it costs arm and leg to keep, you know, to meet all these safety standards that are not making trucks safer to drive up and down the road. So one of the solutions that I've offered to this problem is, is to let, you couldn't do all of them because there does need to be safety experts that have studied the issues on there, but you need truckers to help write trucking legislation. You need miners to help write mine regulations. You need oil field workers. You need all these people 
that are directly affected by this regulation to write these policies. What's your thoughts on that, Nevin? No, I couldn't agree with you more. I think that's a spot on. Um, you know, a, a lot of the de- when you look at the history of deregulation, I term it as I said before, crony deregulation. It's where you have large corporations and financial interests that are pushing it, and it's not because they care about the workers; it's that they want to increase the share, their shareholder value and their profits. Look, it's, there's nothing wrong with profit maximization. That's the purpose of a corporation, is A, to sell products and sell their services and to generate a profit. But there also should be, there needs to be imposed by society and government um, accountability. And when you deregulate things just for the sake of greed or because you believe in as a politician or a think tank, uh, in libertarian free market fundamentalism, and you just deregulate as much as you can, you know, we've seen the results, and the results have been overwhelmingly negative. And the other thing I would say is a lot of, as a result of much of the deregulation, that has not resulted in net increases in jobs necessarily, particularly well paying jobs, because again, companies. The larger companies particularly operate on shareholder value. And, you know, you have a lot of employers that are very good in this country, but you also have many that view labor as this disposable commodity. You know, and people like us are people with families. We contribute to society and we contribute to their to our employers by our labors and stuff like that. So we really we shouldn't be viewed as commodities. And the other thing is, is during the great eras of deregulation, under Ronald Reagan, under George W. Bush, under Trump. I mean, the outsourcing of American jobs increased. Even Trump, uh, in fact, in Trump's first year, the number of jobs that were outsourced was even more than even under Obama, which is pretty terrible. Um, And then on top of that, uh, under Reagan uh, and George W. Bush, you had the Department of Commerce, amongst other agencies, that had programs which showed companies and encouraged them to outsource to countries like Mexico to build production facilities, maquiladoras, or transplant factories, if you will. Uh, So yeah, uh, deregulation is not this wonderful thing. The only thing it helps is the super wealthy people and it helps the stock market and the majority shareholders. Those are the people that tend to see the the most profitable results of deregulation. So that's what I think. On the other hand, are there regulations that need to be re-examined? Absolutely. A very good book out there by Philip K. Howard uh, called The Death of Common Sense. I urge people to look at that. That gives another look at also the pitfalls of what could be considered rather pointless or silly regulation that doesn't make sense. So really and truly there has to be a balance. But at the same token, I stand stoutly against, you know, Reagan sort of Reaganite deregulation, essentially, which has resulted in really poor conditions for working in middle income people and frankly, independent businesses. I mean, the halting uh, and deregulation or halting uh, prevention, basically this, um, what is it, the, uh, the Federal Trade Commission, Department of Justice, federal government, 
they haven't said no really to speak of since the early 1980s to any mergers and acquisitions. That's what's created monopolies. That kind of deregulation has hurt small businesses, for example. That has created the monopolization. Again, teabagger economics, not big government, has created the monopolies that are currently plaguing the American uh, business landscape and hurting small businesses. And that's um, another point, going off of that, that I'd like to interject real quick. Sure. Go ahead. There is no amount of regulations that you can cut that will make us as profitable as China. None. You simply cannot cut that many realistically. I mean, obviously, you could just get rid of all of them, but we're not going to do that. What, mm -hmm. what I'm talking to is the, 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 the deregulation Reaganite crowd. The biggest argument from somebody, I mean, Charlie Kirk, you read a quote from his the other day that was talking about how, American businesses can't stay here because the regulations just make it too hard. Well, that's bullcrap. Is what that is. Because the fact of the matter is, now, first of all, nobody is going to work for $27 a day, which is the average pay of a Chinese industrial worker, by the way. Nobody. I don't give a crap. Nobody's working for $27 a day. Not the most desperate immigrant, not the most desperate homeless person. Nobody. But another thing is, that we can't cut regulations to the point that China and Mexico have, you know, they just lack regulations. They never were regulated in the first place. Mm -hmm. so the argument of saying, well, let's deregulate and let's get our jobs back in this country. Like you said, under Obama, uh, under Reagan, under George H.W. Bush and under Trump was the most pro big business points in American uh, recent American politics. I mean, yes, Bill Clinton and Obama have definitely got far from clean records on the issue of, of, of corporate regulation because for the most part, they, you know, Bill Clinton signed NAFTA and Obama basically mm -hmm. wagged his finger at him. They never done anything really. But what I'm getting to is, is that under the most pro-business presidents in the last 40 years, we lost more jobs. Under the entire Trump presidency, we never had a net positive gain in jobs in the United States for manufacturing at mm -hmm. any point. What I'm getting to is, is that if you keep thinking, oh, if we just cut pay, if we just kill unions, if we just deregulate just a little bit more, I'll have my factory job back. Well, you're wrong. Because this is the thing. When Whirlpool left Fort Smith, Arkansas, took thousands of jobs with it, moved down to Mexico, paid the tariffs on it, and still made more money. That's All right. Per unit. Actually, they get, I don't mean to interject. Actually, since the 1960s, the U.S. tariff code, actually, the Kennedy and Johnson administrations put in benefits for companies to move overseas to produce products. So they're they're only charged a low, they're charged a lower tariff rate to re-export uh, products back into the American market. And there were actually rules, there was actually Congress with the support of the AFL-CIO back in the early 70s tried to stop that through the Burke, Burke, the Burke Hartke bill. But that was unsuccessful because you had the globalists in the you know, the Rockefellers and the Trilateral Commission and and uh, the ECAT, which is the Emergency Committee on American Trade, they all fought that. And, uh, you know, and, and the rest is history. I found that thing about how regulation, when properly crafted, actually saves society and people money. 
And I wanted to read this for the audience because, you know, you and I are right-leaning or you and I were former right-wingers and we believed in deregulation. I believed in it very strongly. And it took a lot of this factual information and reflecting on history to change my mind. So let me just read this for the sake of the audience here. Mark Green and Norman Waitsman, both graduate students at American University, wrote a study for the Corporate Accountability Research Group that revealed that the activities and rules of four federal regulatory agencies yielded $36 billion worth in benefits to Americans. And that study was from a long time ago. So $36 billion, that's a lot of money from a long time ago. The MIT Commission on Industrial Productivity from 1986 maintain that while some regulations hindered the competitiveness of certain individual industries, much of the negative impacts in the American economy were minimal. The same commission also found that, quote, excessive taxes, regulations, and high labor costs were not responsible for the loss of America's global competitive edge. Instead, the report blamed the following for economic stagnation, short-term business thinking, meaning the encouragement of mergers and acquisitions, a refusal to invest in new plants and equipment, slowness in bringing new products into the global and American market, and a general refusal to respond to customer needs. The commission noted significantly, as I add, that, quote, only an extraordinary optimist could believe that the current wave of takeover activity, meaning leverage buyouts and mergers and acquisitions, only an extraordinary optimist could believe that the current wave of takeover activity is an efficient way to deal with the organizational deficiencies of American industries. In at least one respect, its tendency to favor short-term horizons, we believe it is part of the problem, not part of the solution. So, ladies and gentlemen, T-Bagger economics of Ronald Reagan and Reaganism is a failure. It is a failure. I just read you two studies here, not from the Communist Party USA, not from Bernie Sanders, who's a social Democrat, academic studies. And it makes sense if you think about it when you look at the history. So I ask everybody, you know, put Atlas Shrugged down, put Milton Friedman's Capitalism and Freedom down for a second. Let's look at the data. Look at the world around you. Yeah. Deregulation, crony deregulation, as I like to call it, let's specify it, is a failure. And to address this when crafting regulatory policy, I would like to do it in partnership, yes, with businesses, federal government, and the labor unions as representatives of the workers and come up with a balanced solution to deal with a very complex issue. Our goal is not to hurt the workers, but our goal is not to put capitalism in the grave either. Let me make, let's make this very crystal clear. So, and if you still want to call us socialists or communists or fascists, well, you know what, this program's not for you. Go listen to Ben Shapiro. Yeah. You know, at this point, I don't even care anymore, Nevin. You know, the, the fact is, is that nobody on that part of the spectrum is ever going to call us anything but socialists. So I'm just going to keep talking like I have been. Me too. Now, now here's something, because I, I want to shift gears here into something, because I think we've made our point well on deregulation. Yes. Now, I wanted to talk about 
the near tandem crap show going on in the, in Washington, but I, I don't know enough right now. I think that would be better for our next episode to talk about her. She's a terrible person. She shouldn't be in government, but she deserves her own segment later on. But I was thinking about this while we were talking about deregulation, outsourcing the jobs and all the other, about the minimum wage question that's going around, because let's not act like that isn't one of the biggest issues in the country right now. That is an issue raising the minimum wage to $15 an hour. Nick Hanauer wasn't the first guy to do it, but he's been beating that drum for quite a few years now. Mm -hmm. And let's talk about it. Now, Mm -hmm. before we begin, there's an age-old thing that floats around conservative media that, that, that minimum wage jobs were meant for minimum skilled labor, especially high school kids looking for a part-time job. They said that is what it was designed for. And I've heard and seen memes, you know, they say, well, burger flippers don't deserve the same money as pa- paramedics. And burger flippers, well, well, if they're making $15 an hour, then what should I be making? Now, these are great questions. I don't think you're wrong for saying that if somebody flipping burgers makes as much money or should be making as much money as a paramedic. But that's not because I don't think that the burger flippers should make a living. That's because I think paramedics and everybody else should be paid more. But let me read you a quote. FDR was the man that created the uh, minimum wage as we know it. Mm -hmm. And I'm going to read you this quote so you can hear it from the horse's mouth what was the original purpose of the minimum wage. He said, No business which depends for existence on paying less than a living wage to its workers has any right to continue in this country. And by living wages... I mean more than a bare subsistence level. I mean the wages of a decent living. Now, most people cut that quote off there, but there's more. Mm -hmm. Do not let any calamity howling executive with an income of $1,000 a day who has been turning his employees over to the government relief rolls in order to preserve his company's undisturbed or undistributed reserves tell you using his stockholders' money to pay the postage on his personal for his personal opinions, tell you that a wage of $11 a week is going to have a disastrous effect on American industry. The minimum wage was not designed for high school kids and minimum skill jobs. That was never the design. The minimum wage was designed to give, make sure that everybody working a 40 hour week could have a, what, I mean, he didn't say it directly in that quote, but I know that the, the purpose of it is that you could afford a home and food to feed your family. Precisely. That's the whole purpose of it. And it's the same, you know, in the book of Solomon, um, and not the book of Solomon, was it? In, in Ecclesiastes, Solomon talks about, well, I think it's Solomon, talks about how nothing is new, that everything that you think is new is just something that's very old that people forgot about. The executive, the, the, you know, the crying executive living on $1,000 a day back then is the billionaire crying about it today, clutching their pearls about hard work and determination and turning the working class against people that they have no is- should have no issue with. That burger flipper at McDonald's is not the reason that your house is so dang expensive today. That store clerk that's been on her feet 50 hours this week is not the reason that your pay hasn't gone up in 20 years. It's it's this is the thing that drives me so damn nuts about the way this country operates and conservatives as a, as a whole is you're blaming the wrong damn people. They you are mad people that have no problem have no control over your life situation. 
the minimum wage in this country indexed to inflation and adjusted for cost of living will be $21 an hour today. Correct. Yeah, or 23. I see even 23. You're asking people to work for three times less than the minimum wage than what it should be. These billionaires have made record profits in the middle of the worst pandemic of the modern era. There, there are more new billionaires now than there have been in the last 10 years. And they're crying about wait, raising your wages. And here's something else for the conservatives that are always talking about government spending. We spend $109 billion a year subsidizing wages for companies that pay less than $15 an hour between food stamps, Medicare, or food stamps, Medicaid, housing assistance, child care assistance, $109 billion a year. It wouldn't cost us that much to run completely public university. That's what the cost of cheap wages are. You're paying for it. You know, you're always talking about welfare queens and lazy people taking advantage of the system. Well, by God, what the hell is Walmart doing? What's Walmart doing when they're taking your tax dollars to pay people poverty wages? This is why our system's broken. And this is why I know that the propaganda machine in America might be the most effective propaganda machine ever devised. Because I never see conservatives talking about how the Walton family one of the wealthiest families on earth gets corporate subsidies from the federal government to not pay their damn employees a dime over the minimum. You know, they pay them what? It's about $11 an hour now. And even that, that's nowhere near enough. That's $22,000 a year. If the minimum wage was increased to $15 an hour, that would be $30,000 a year. 51% of workers in America make less than $31,000 a year. 51%. That's not all the college kids and high school kids. That is working adults. That is people with kids. That is people with families. That's people with social commitments and house payments and everything else that we are subsidizing with our federal, with our tax dollars, with our work, the work that we produced in the first place so these big companies can get filthy, stinking rich off of us. And it just drives me up a wall, Nevin, and I know you've got strong opinions on it too, and I'm going to have to calm down for just a minute before I come out of my skin. I think you're going to have to have, instead of that energy drink, you're going to have to have some of my rum and coke here. I'm going to have to pour you a cup and hand it to you over there or something. I don't know. you got to, woo, you're hot and ready to pop. No, I'm, it, look, this upsets me to no, to no end as well. I've written about it. I've spoken about it. You know, I think there are many things at play here. Number one, the, the corporate conservatives and big business, they encourage this type of rhetoric of blaming welfare queens and pitting one group of workers, the low-wage fast food and retail workers versus paramedics and whatnot. They're doing that to divide the working class and the middle class. That is a political ploy that's been used in America by the by the economic and political elites uh, since, uh, since Reconstruction. In the South, and Dr. Martin Luther King talked about it in uh, one of his uh, famous speeches. He talked about how in the South there was a populist coalition that was multiracial that was developing, but the elites hated that. They were threatened by that. So what happened was the conservatives in their day, the Bourbon Democrats in the South, it's heinous, heinous, globalist, anti-labor, uh, racist group of elites in the South 
use racial division to divide this populist coalition in half, to divide the whites against uh, their, their black brothers and sisters in the South from, from uh, building their populist coalition. And so this is a very, very old tactic. And it's one of the many reasons why I've abandoned conservatism in the Republican Party, at least in its Reaganite, uh, you know, sort of teabagger globalist incarnation. Why? Because they just like to pit weak, weaker peoples against, uh, against themselves, against other weaker groups. And I don't like that. That just doesn't sit well with me, with my sense of personal values and morals. No, it's obviously um, the Mexicans' fault, Nevin. Don't you oh, know? Oh, of course. It, it, but it's never the people that hire the ins, basically enslaved Mexicans. It's never the job creators, the so-called job creators. Oh no, we can't talk about those people because oh, excuse me, they're giving us lots of money, so we're not, we're just going to blame the brown-skinned people and not the people in the suits and ties. I don't know if you guys heard me, you yeah. know, whispering here, you know, if you will. But, you know, so I think the solution to this, to be honest with you, um, is basically an amendment to the Constitution that needs to address economics. Multiple amendments need to be placed into the Constitution, including perhaps FDR's um, Economic Bill of Rights. And I think one of the things that should be put into place is a national right to collectively bargain. and. In that amendment, there should also be a ban on right to work um, put into effect. And there also needs to be also much more harsher penalties for employers that legitimately intimidate employees, including firing them from trying to join or organize unions. Did you see that, that shit going on in Alabama right now where Amazon is paying workers $2,000 to quit before the union vote? Yes. That's completely legal, by yes. the way. And that kind of thing, at the end of the day, people like Jeff Bezos, we need to have a state independent and powerful enough, a national government. And this is going to have to come through changes in the Constitution. It's going to have to be in the change, uh, basically almost in our national culture in some ways. But we need to have a government that will basically say, Jeff Bezos, your ass is going right in jail or to the other executives who make these decisions. There needs to be accountability. There's all kinds of accountability put on place with, you know, oh, we got to crack down on those food stamp users and those, you know, those people that abuse welfare, other forms of welfare and, and you know, uh, all these other small time people. I'm not saying they shouldn't be punished at time for people abusing the system, but it's always, everything is always stacked and punitive against there's all these punitive measures and punishments always against poorer people people without power there needs to be more of a balance and you're right and and the thing is is that individuals who are fired from companies they can then sue the company or fired from companies for starting unions or joining unions or trying to organize okay the company fires them they sue the company the companies legal expenses trying to fight off the suit is considered tax deductible mm -hmm. it's called, the companies call it their internally their hunting license mm -hmm. that's how fucked up our system has become in this country this is why unlike some of our anti-communist analysts who i will leave nameless 
The left doesn't control the country. I'm sorry. This is corporate America dominates the country. It is way, way off balance. America is not a socialist country. The way to preserve the credibility of capitalism and a newer form of American Republican small R style government is through stakeholder capitalism, powerful unions, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. You need to have a government with a new ethical sense. It shouldn't be just about uh, you know, protecting, I guess, what has been termed negative rights and whatnot. The government has to partially move away from untrammeled economic and political laissez-faire liberalism. It also needs to include a new ethic of balancing sectional interests and class interests in this country for the greater good. There has to be that kind of system has to be worked into a new constitution. It's the only one of the ways we can prevent this country from collapsing socially. Uh, and I firmly believe this. That is the solution. I mean, look, I voted for an increase in the minimum wage in the Florida referendum that we had here to $15. I voted for that. But do I see that as a foolproof benefit? No, I think unions are better capable of negotiating things based on local conditions rather than just merely an all-powerful federal government all the time. And that's where you need to have also unions with the leadership. Uh, and I've met union people, they're good people from my experience at least. Um, and the bottom line is, is the, you know, as the famous conservative philosopher, uh, Russell Kirk says, we need genuinely educated businessmen and genuinely educated trade union uh, leaders. And, you know, educate, genuinely educated means that they have an understanding of history they have an understanding of the national interest, you know, uh, and then they'll be able to move forward and I think construct a positive country. And the problem is, is our leadership class is based on an ethic of total liberalism, uh, total political individualism. It's all about their careers. It's not about necessarily doing the right thing. There are exceptions to the rule. So really and truly, we need a new mass movement. It goes back to this point. In this country, I'd like to see the development of a new mass-based, multiracial, populist, and civic nationalist movement that will deeply and profoundly reform this country, uh, even in its structural sense. And that's what it comes down to. You know, Nevin, and that's where that point you made right there at the end. Because I was talking to my dad earlier. And we were talking about politics and, you know, getting involved in it. And this is something I'd like to say to people. Sitting on the sidelines from the comfort of your own home and just waiting for somebody to come save you is, is a terrible idea. The only way, and I mean the only way, that we're ever going to see any real political movements inside the United States is when people start to take what they've got and do something with it. You know, me and Nevin, we're not special. We're not some... You know, we weren't given every opportunity in life to help make this podcast or start the patriotic populist. We're two dudes that believed in something and we've done it. 
the reason I do this podcast, the reason I spend 15 or so hours a week promoting us on social media, the reason I do all this stuff is because I believe in what I'm talking about. And it's something that you need to make a decision then for yourself. Are you, do you actually care about seeing things change or do you just, are you just a wishful thinker? Because there's a lot of wishful thinkers out there and there's not a lot of people that actually care about change. And that's a terrible thing because you need people that are willing to sacrifice personal freedom, the people willing to sacrifice personal time, people willing to put their neck out there that are willing to make the decision to say, look, I believe that we have to make a fundamental change in this country now. And the reason that this is so important, Nevin, is because this country is coming apart at the seams right now. We have never, not in, the, in any of our lifetimes, seen social discontent to the level that we're seeing it right now. People have no faith at all in our governmental institutions. People have no faith in our media institutions. When The other day, in the middle of Texans freezing to death because their dumbass government decided they didn't want to pay the electric bill and didn't want to regulate it, you had liberals from California that were making fun of them because Texas is a red state. A country cannot survive like this. Them people in Texas, that they, they ain't got no damn control over their power grid. If you look at the way our government operates, and this has been proven time and time again by various studies, we are effectively an oligarchy at this point. Mm -hmm. The will of the people, the general consensus of what people want almost never gets done. And the only time it is given to us, you look like, you know, see $15 an hour minimum wage and actual $2,000 checks, for example. The only time they do it is some watered down, repackaged, on brand, you know, way of doing shit that doesn't help actual working people. So get off the fence. Make the decision in your life right now whether or not you actually care about this stuff. That you actually care. You, you want to be an activist? Then get out there in the damn street and do something. Because I've sat here for weeks now thinking about this and myself and how far I'm willing to go. And I'm in on this. And Nevin, I know you're in on this. I'm not telling you to join us. I'm telling you to do something. Anything. Because the, this country, when it tears itself apart, if we don't change, and it will, if we don't change anything fast. What are you going to tell your kids, your grandkids, your family, or anybody if you manage to make it through this you know, terrible event that we're about to happen, that's about to happen? Nevin, and this is, activism is hard. It's hard to give up time. It's hard to believe in something, to actually like to believe it inside, in your soul that you're doing the right thing. I don't know, Nevin. It's apathy, and that's what I've hated so much here lately because I've seen... I've seen so many people that I have so much respect for just give up everything they believe in to follow, to do nothing. You know, right now, the left, who was absolutely correct on a lot of things that Trump was doing wrong, where are they at? You know, these liberals that bashed Trump for, for the war, you know, for bombing Syria. The other day, they seen Joe Biden, you know, he just launched all kinds of, you know, launched a, a bombing effort or a missile strike mm -hmm. effort in Syria. Mm -hmm. I've seen more apologists over the last couple of days. What I'm getting to is the problems are not going away. Joe Biden didn't get elected, and all these problems that we're talking about just magically disappeared. Every, you know, the, the rainbow didn't appear over the sunshine, and, and <laughs> crime and poverty still exist, and homelessness and destitution and hopelessness still exist in this country. We need a generation of activists, or at least a, I'd say generate. We need generations of activists. We need people that are willing to make that commitment. And it's my, my message. I know this podcast is probably not going to get a hell of a lot of views. We, you know, we're still building up our, our brand. But to those of you who do listen, 
make a decision in your life to believe in something bigger than yourself for once. And you might find that you can make a difference. Nevin, you've been in politics for quite a while now. What makes you do this? What what's what you know, what motivates you anymore to keep going? Personal love of country and the fact that I want my daughter to inherit this country. You know, one time and you know, look, I don't I should, I'm going to reveal something. My daughter, actually, and she's 15, she's smart as a whip. And one night we were talking, you know, I was picking her up from her circus troupe. She does Cirque du Soleil stuff. It's really amazing. And we were having dinner on the way. She was really mentioning things, how she really was very concerned and discouraged about you know, how the healthcare situation in this country with the rampant homelessness, extreme class divisions, which is very apparent down here in South Florida, uh, you know, and a variety of other things that really upset her, you know, and she looks to, you know, Western Europe and Scandinavia, it seemed in a more positive fashion, certainly good, at least it's better than looking at Cuba or China or Venezuela as models. Um, But that concerns me. I couldn't get angry at her. I mean, of course, I mentioned the good things about the many good things about the United States. But the fact of the matter is, is she's correct. This is an example of what happens when you have your country turned into an oligarchy run by globalist corporations and other financial interests. We're not a socialist country. And I got to tell you, this is where I agree with, disagree strongly with people like J.R. Nyquist and others. The left doesn't control the country. I mean, the left is in a disorganized and even in an organized fashion. They're becoming more powerful and more vocal, and their ideas are gaining currency. And he is correct in saying that. But the left doesn't own the store. Corporations own the store. It wasn't the left that shipped your jobs overseas to communist China. It wasn't the left that gave permanent normal trade relations to Vladimir Putin. It was corporate America and many swaths of the political right in this country. You know, it wasn't the left that missed the boat on communism, or it wasn't just the the left that missed the boat regarding the Gorbachev deception. It was Ronald Reagan and George Herbert Walker Bush. So the bottom line is, is that really and truly... I agree that we need a new mass-based movement, as you and I have talked about before. But in a nutshell, I do this for my daughter, who expressed a lot of concerns about what's going on in the country. And I said she was right. I mentioned again a lot of the good things about the country, but I mentioned, you know, hey, you know what, you're right, and you make good points. And I'm upset about that, too. And this is why I do this. I do this for her. I do this because I've always been interested in politics and other intellectual activities and pursuits. And frankly, I don't want the United States to collapse or become a weaker power because then Russia and China fill in the vacuum and the world will not become a better place. Um, And, you know, you know, Nyquist wrote an essay and one of the, and he, there was somebody who asked him about what kind of positive program are you, what are you going to offer the people, if you will? I wish I had it posted in front of me so I, 
apologize to Nyquist or the authors of these back and forth in his blog uh, if I'm misquoting. But the person said, what are you going to basically offer them, offer the people? And Jeff said, of course, before we offer the people any ideas or, you know, ideas of governance and economics or whatever, you know, we have to first get the people, even 30% of the people on board with understanding one thing, that communism is the enemy. But I got to tell you, Herschel, I take issue with that because it doesn't reflect the reality of America and Americans. Americans want to believe in something. Americans want to get up every morning, have a decent job, achieve the American dream, have a family, have kids, white picket fence, the whole nine yards. I'm not saying they all want to become billionaires and Mercedes. They just want to have some dignity in life. And I'm sorry, you know, Jeff Nyquist, wrong answer. Wrong answer. You have to give people something to believe in. You can't just run on saying communism is the enemy. You have to say that communism is the enemy and provide the people with something to unify for and not just abstract conservative principles of freedom because you know what? We've tried that. We're governed by that. That's why corporate America owns the store. That's why Amazon can get away with paying people $2,000 to quit uh, in order not to join the union, okay? We need to, the problem of communism, of domestic communism and socialism is a symptom of the failure of the system, okay? And I gotta tell you, I'm not, I, you know, he knows my views and everything, but I gotta let I gotta let the goose loose here, man. That was kind of funny, you gotta admit. Um, you gotta let the goose loose here. I have to let it out here. This is, you know, people like him are wonderful on national security issues. I've been meaning to get this off my chest in a public forum. He is top notch on national security. But if you don't want Russia and China to come into the United States for left-wing quizzling elements of the left, because not all leftists are disloyal or bad people, but if you don't want those individuals, political groups to seize power and a collapsing United States and Russia and China to fill the vacuum and threaten the, our freedom and our children's freedoms and us as a sovereign nation, dump conservatism dump this limited government bullshit that basically is just a tool weaponized by corporate America to get whatever the hell they want. I mean, this is, this is how it is. And this is a painful journey for me. I used to believe in deregulating, laissez-faire, everyone will act according to their rational self-interest. I used to buy into that. Those of you who remember me from high school who are listening to this podcast, I know some of you have listened to some of them, you remember how conservative I was. You remember I was gung-ho laissez-faire capitalism. Not anymore. And I did videos for this program describing why I abandoned that. So why do I do this? Love of country, 
wanting us to preserve our homeland, our soil, our people, our communities, and for my child. And I'm sure for you, Herschel, to preserve a future for your children. Uh, I'll just conclude on that, and you can comment if you'd like. So, you spawn on them. And this is what I want to tell people. If you love your country, you got to fight for it. When, whether it be Martin Luther King, Huey Long, Malcolm X, or all the other revolutionaries, no matter their opinions, most of them love their country. The reason that, that history remembers them is because they took the plunge into something that most people won't do. And the fact is, Nevin, and, and I can be wishful think I, I can wishful think all I want, but the fact is that most people will never act on their feelings. They'll never act, you know, they'll they're probably never going to become political activists. But to the ones that will, to that people and, and I want to tell you this. This is just from what I know, and this is why I stay in politics, Nevin. And it is because, you know, I want a better future for my kids, but it's something deep in you. It's like a an itch you can't scratch. It's it's a burning desire in your heart. That it's something you have to do. You know, I've tried to get away from politics, but I can't. It's mm -hmm. me because I know that that I've been blessed with the the ability to give a crap about shit. And that that's something that, that not a lot of people have. A lot of people they go along to get along. And mm -hmm. I'm not bragging on myself. I'm saying that trust me because I, there's a lot of times I wish I just didn't care. Because me too. when you get into this and you start realizing how screwed up the system is and you get an understanding of all the wrongs that have occurred in this country over the last, well, its whole history, but especially the last 40 years, you just want to go crazy. But to the aspiring politicians and political pundits and other people that may watch this one day, I want to give you a word of advice. If you don't do it, you'll never be happy. I believe that there are people that are born for politics, or at least born for making people's lives better. Be it you know, podcasters, organizers, union organizers, politicians. I, I do think there are people, genuinely good people that are meant for this line of work. But you got to take the plunge. Now, me and Nevin, you know, we, we're trying to build something here with the patriotic populace. We're trying to, to build an organization of populists, you know, build a coalition of populists that are going to help make a difference in this country. And every person that we add, every podcast that's recorded underneath us, every you know, member that helps push for this stuff. That's one person more that's going to make a difference. But we've got to stand together. This is the thing. If you want to know why populist movements, why any of them had any success, it's because you had a bunch of people that decided that this is worth something. You know, the civil rights movement doesn't happen until people up and decide one day that we're not going to take this anymore. And that's how all movement starts. But it started from people that were out there screaming on the sidewalks to nobody for a long time. And you're going to have bad days and you're going to have hard days and you're going to have days you wish you could just give it all up and quit and go back to your life as normal. But don't. Don't give up. Don't quit. Don't forget why you do what you do. And I won't quit. I know Nevin won't quit. Now, Nevin, this has been a pretty long episode. Um... But I'm glad we did it. And then the reason I'm glad is, is because that I want people to understand that we're not going away. You mean you're here for the long haul. <laughs>
But to all the people that do listen to this, and, I, and I've tried to offer you my best words, but I, I'm not going to talk anymore about it because I just start getting preachy. But if you're really interested in politics, whether it be podcasting, running for governor, or running for office, or anything like that, get a hold of us. Um, I believe our email is on our Facebook page. By the way, anybody listening to this video, make sure to like, share, and subscribe. Uh, follow us on Facebook and YouTube, or Facebook and Twitter. Same name, easy to find. Stay up to date on it. But if you want, if you're serious about joining politics or getting into politics, talk to us. We're more than happy to help out. We're building something here. And one of these days, the patriotic populace is going to be a household name because we, I believe in what we're doing. And Evan, it's been a pleasure. Do you have any final words of closing out? Uh, no, just, uh, you know, just to say to the audience here, to echo your sentiments, Herschel, seize the moment, go for it. And the future hopefully will be ours, meaning all the greater mass of the American people. And the first way to get started is subscribe to our podcast, subscribe to or quote like our Facebook page. We'll eventually be getting on to Twitter. No, we and are on Twitter. We are on Twitter. I'm sorry, excuse yeah. me. To like our Twitter page, to like our Facebook page, but most importantly, to not only subscribe to our podcast on YouTube, but also to share our videos for educational purposes, to get people to think. There are a lot of, I had, do have some good news out there. A lot, there are a lot of people that do think like us to varying degrees on economic, political, and national security issues in varying degrees. And that's good news. So what you gotta do is when you talk to people at a family gathering, a party, just hanging out at a barbecue, you happen to listen to this podcast and you're talking politics or history, current events, and you, those other people, family members, friends, are basically, you know, spouting views similar to ours, share our podcast with them. And then they'll share it with other people through word of mouth and through social media. It's best forms of advertising. And then as a result of education, you'll then have group affirmation of values. And then once we, if we do have a large mass of listeners, then it could be a tool to use for struggle for a better United States of America. And Herschel, it's been an absolute pleasure uh, hosting or co-hosting the show with you. Um, and uh, I look forward to doing a show tomorrow, actually. We're going to be doing a Q&A. And we're going to be doing that on a weekly basis. And also some other news, we're going to be also investing in the future in some new equipment for ours, webcams and podcast microphones. Mm -hmm. So this is something not only that Herschel and I put considerable amount of time, and I also make my solo videos on top of that, we also put money into this too. We use our internet services, our computers, that costs money. And... Uh, you know, we're going to be investing in our own funds uh, for equipment. Why? Because we believe in what we do are doing. This is one of our life's passions. Well, never and, on that, and on that note, I wish you all good night, and we will see you tomorrow. Okay. Hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on.